Hey, welcome back. Amazing. Week nine. Wow. Social isolation, huh? To whatever extent it is. So a couple little housekeeping things, um, which always, almost always is, you know, another instance for what's really important here, shameless self-promotion. The Menlo Group, uh, we're, we're between the two weekends. You can still join the, the second weekend if you like. That starts tomorrow. There's a link for that on the Menlo site on the online courses. Um, we're going to be altering it just a teeny little bit, and this will be in resonance with what we're going to be doing in today's session. Today's session is going to start um, with a little bit more extensive riff on some topics. But uh, I talked to Bob Thurman this week, and we're going to actually be talking during the course of the Menlo event, using his extraordinary insights into this, I think, about everything that's happening now, in addition to the whole COVID thing, literally the suffering of suffering. The Buddhist tradition has lists of everything, and it has lists of suffering. Suffering of not getting what you want, the suffering of losing what you have, the suffering of suffering. That's kind of what's happening now, you know, because on top of this underlying milieu, of the COVID thing, now we have this extraordinary George Floyd situation, which I actually want to talk a little bit about today. So um, if you want to join us for that, more than welcome to do that. Also, um, the following weekend, I, I actually called Shamala Mountain Center to cancel this program because I'm just doing a little bit um, too much, but they kind of talked me back into it. A weekend on working with anxiety and fear in an uncertain world, um, which, wow, that's even more applicable than ever. And so we're also throwing in uh, anger, how to work with anxiety, anger, and fear in an uncertain world. And so that's on the Shambhala Mountain website. That will be another, obviously, an online event. Um, so I want to start, before I say anything, I want to start with reading a really beautiful poem by uh, Pablo Neruda, <clears throat> Keeping Quiet, because we're going to be um, launching before we do our open charter to everybody else, because that's kind of the spirit of these gatherings is to you know, open it up for everybody. Before we get into some kind of um, challenging, difficult, potentially noisy material, I think it's always helpful to start with a little bit of silence. So I want to read this beautiful poem, and then we can, uh, I'll guide you through one or two very simple things that kind of just get centered, gathered, because in many ways, that's one of, the, one of the narratives that I'm going to try to unfold, which I think you'll see when, once we get going. So this is Neruda. Now we will count to 12, and we will all keep still for once on the face of the earth. Let's not speak in any language Let's stop for a second and not move our arms so much. It would be an exotic moment without rush, without engines. We would all be together in the sudden strangeness. Fishermen in the cold sea would not harm whales. And the man gathering salt would not look at his hurt hands. Those who prepare green wars, wars with gas, wars with fire, victories with no survivors, would put on clean clothes and walk about with their brothers in the shade doing nothing. 
What I want should not be confused with total inactivity. Life is what it is about. I want no truck with death. If we were not so single-minded about keeping our lives moving and for once could do nothing, perhaps a huge silence might interrupt this sadness of never, of never understanding ourselves and of threatening ourselves with death. Perhaps the earth can teach us as when everything seems dead and later proves to be alive. Now I'll count up to the 12 and you keep quiet and I will go. Beautiful. So there's a, a gesture that I often do, especially when, when situations are pretty charged and there's a lot of hurt. Um, it's a kind of a mudra that Mipar Mabuche talks about, which I quite like, which is before you start your meditation session, you, you, just, you just bring your right hand up or left hand, doesn't matter, and put it over your heart and connect. There's also this kind of quality of like, you know, I'm okay. Whatever happens, I'm okay. And also, it's okay to be feeling whatever I'm feeling, no matter what it is. That too is also okay. And so I find in this time of just extraordinary unease, even despair, reconnecting, centering to what's really important so that we don't lose our own seat. We don't lose our own center. This mudra of connectivity and acceptance, I find quite powerful. So not only is it okay to feel Good Lord, all these incredible cascade of really difficult, unwanted experiences. I think it would actually be not okay if we weren't feeling these things, if somehow this wasn't really, really deeply upsetting to us. And so then the question that I want to explore with you is, what do we do with these feelings? How can we use this energy properly? <clears throat> How can we relate to it instead of from it? And therefore, respond to what's happening properly without reacting improperly. And so another kind of joining, um, kind of connecting practice here as well. We did this, I don't know, week two or three. Remember we did a little bit of Tonglin? I also find this to be a brutally powerful practice. Tonglen practice of sending and taking, if you didn't attend that class, is on the medium of the breath, with every in-breath, you inhale suffering, pain, disquietude, of which there is no shortage. Visualizing literally on each inhalation, something as brutally painful as George Floyd's death under the knee of this officer. 
So we take that in. And of course, we're not taking it in. If we take it in personally, that's a mistake. Then we become reactive. It's actually the cosmos that's taking it in. And we are a representative of that cosmos, a representative of that reality. So for just a minute, I love this practice of Tonglen because it's so gritty. Not the usual kind of pristine, pure, antiseptic kind of spiritual escapist thing. Tonglen is in your face. So for just the next minute, each in-breath, bring in all this unwanted, no shortage. And then with each out-breath through every pore of your body, radiate love, peace, compassion, goodness to yourself, to George Floyd, to his family, to everybody who's really, really suffering right now. It's an amazing thing about the human heart, right? When the heart breaks, it just gets bigger. And so you can do this literally one breath, Tong Lin. You can do this within the cycle of one inhalation and exhalation. So this kind of following little riff, a little bit different from what we normally do, is seated by one of our most active members in nightclub, Arthur, who I invited, actually, I hope he's here, um, and he's gonna invite him on in a few seconds to share this really kind of, I think, completely applicable post that he put on about um, paraphrasing it, but then I want Arthur to really talk about it, about, you know, what are we really doing with our spirituality? What are we doing with nightclub? Are we, in fact, just entitled elite spiritual escapists, classic spiritual bypassers using our little endeavors to fundamentally make ourselves feel sweet, cozy, good, and FedExing out of the harsh, gritty nature of relative reality. So we're going to speak a little bit about that. Um, just parenthetically, I do have to say, you know, kind of enlightened activism is not the overt charter of what we do with things like my club, but it is absolutely positively implied. And I think those kinds of implications are what I want to unpack with you a little bit. Um, and so Several ways to do this. One way using the lucidity principle altogether, so we can frame it in that context because that's where these comments were originally um, born, is lucidity fundamentally is just, remember, it's code word for awareness. Awareness of what's really happening. Awareness is fundamentally, if there is a curative ingredient, psychologically or spiritually, it's actually increased awareness. So lucidity principle altogether is in fact about developing that awareness cutting through a mere appearance, like what, you know, what seems to be happening, getting to what's really, really happening. And, and I often have this little riff, you know, that the, the spiritual path is about bringing appearance in harmony with reality. So here's appearance, here's reality. You wanna bring the two into harmony. And if you don't, 
you end up basically non-lucid, lost in the display, lost in mere appearance, and then fundamentally reacting instead of responding. So fundamentally, in this regard, non-lucidity is really, even at the level of dreams, is about getting excessively involved and therefore lost in appearance, losing one's perspective. And so therefore, what we want to do is, is more accurately discern, like, what's really going on here? What are the foundational tenets here? And, and so sometimes, you know, spirituality is just kind of dismissed as this whatever, you know, bourgeois kind of elite thing. But I would argue, and I, I, I can argue this in some detail and with some vigor, that everything is fundamentally spiritual in essence. It's kind of a reductionism, you know, reducing everything to spirit, which actually is elevationism. It's not reducing, it's actually elevating. That really everything we do, and we can really talk about this, psychologically, physically, everything that we do is fundamentally a spiritual issue, a disconnect from reality, a loss of fundamental tenets that we no longer even address as spiritual because we're so deeply lost in non-lucidity in the display, in the so-called material. And so therefore, these types of traditions, practices, the nocturnal meditations and the like that may seem almost frivolous, you know, when you compare it to the gritty bazooka tear gas relative reality, actually, this is the more foundational paradigm. Everything else is really an unrecognized, confused relationship to what are fundamentally spiritual tenets. And so really, um, so much to say here, of course, as usual, but what I want to do is just um, leave you with a really beautiful quote by John Kabat-Zinn, you know, the father of mindfulness-based stress reduction, where he says this, I got this from an interview he did, when we know the mind deeply, we get beauty, the arts, and all things wondrous. When we don't know the mind, we get Auschwitz. We get the killing of George Floyd. We get everything that's happening in this world. And so that's really what the spiritual practices do. That's what the nocturnal meditations do. They just do it using the nighttime mind, is a profound exploration of the deep structures, not getting lost in the surface structures, the deep structures of mind, fundamentally cutting through all these layers of adventitious defilement <clears throat> and the obscurations born from those levels of mistaken identity, transitioning to who we really are, and then fundamentally realizing that who we are turns out to be everybody else. That we literally share all sentient beings, not just humans, all sentient beings share the same bed of mind, all of us. And that's like Pema Chodron always says, her main practice, one of her main practices now is a powerful one is just like me, right? Just like me, George Floyd is just like me. All these other people are just like me. And so this kind of spiritual mumbo jumbo psycho babble rhetoric becomes our reality when we take these deep dives and we start to really look within. The farther down the rabbit hole you go, the more collective the experience becomes. 
you find less of yourself and more of others. That's wisdom. But yet born from that wisdom, which is, which is not ineffectual, that wisdom is turbocharged, is compassion. That when you see yourself as not separate from others, the suffering of others becomes your own and you want to get rid of it. And so when we feel these types of things, when our heart is just so broken with what's happening, we all want to act. But how do we do this properly? How do we do it without creating more karma? Because if we just react from these superficial levels, ugh, you know, maybe not so skillful. So intention is everything here. Intention is what drives action, which is what creates karma. Is there, in fact, a way to act in an enlightened way that doesn't create karma? The only way you can do that is if you act from a completely selfless, non-referential point of view. And so I, I throw all these out as noodles against the wall to show you that these, these teachings that are brought about by this profound level of inner work, do the inner work first. That doesn't mean we should wait un until we achieve some lofty space. It means we start, we have the aspiration, but fundamentally in order to really affect the world properly, instead of just adding to the pollution, we kind of need to know what's really going on. So really effective outer work starts with really, really effective inner work. Otherwise we just get lost in our hopes and fears and our projections and, and all sorts of you know, subtle and not so subtle traps. And so what I want to do at this point is, um, if Arthur is on board, I want him to say a few words. And then I've also invited um, Joseph Parent. He's my dear friend, the golf guy that I always have banter with. Joseph is also a really sensitive, um, very seasoned practitioner, thinker, graduate of the three-year retreat. I'm, I've asked Joseph to say a couple things on this. And I also was scanning very briefly th through the people that are here. There's so many gifted people that are attending. And I noticed that Myra is also attending. She's an immigration lawyer. I mean, she works with this stuff on a daily basis. So Andy, if, if Myra wants to say something, I'm gonna let her come to the front of the line, so to speak. Um, and so Arthur, if you're there, I invite you to say a couple things. I mean, I've been invite Joseph to say a couple things and then we're just gonna open it up and talk about some of the stuff that really is um, front and center right now and really does need to be addressed. So please, Arthur, if you're there, my friend. Sure, and I'll just jump in and say the the chat got a little bit, I think we got Zoom bombed and the chat was getting a little bit messy. So I disabled the chat temporarily. Um, but we can oh, move Zoom. forward. Cool. Okay, Arthur. Okay, hi, I'm here, Andrew. Hey, amigo. Oh, I love the cat in the background, man. Oh, thank you. Thank awesome. You. That's my cat, Jinko. <laughs> Beautiful. Um, so, I'm not sure how to proceed. Did you want me to read my post? Or? Yes, yes. Either read your post or summarize it. Um, and then we're just going to use this as a platform. Um, I'm going to then turn it over to Joe. And then we're just going to use this as a platform to, to really sit, you know, sit around and talk about this stuff. So please. Okay, thanks. I guess I'll read the post. I wasn't uh, really intending to read it out loud on video. So this should be an interesting experiment. Okay. <laughs> Um, okay, so the post was titled, How to Engage with the Current Collective Nightmare, what, question mark. Um, 
is something that has been very much on my mind lately. I mean, waking from the dream of reality is great and all, but incredibly fucked up and scary shit is going down in America right now, and there's every possibility of things getting a lot worse. I'm wondering how people here feel about this, very much including Andrew. Uh, do people want Nightclub to be purely a refuge from the unpleasant nightmare outside our virtual temple? Or do we talk about the collective shadow currently on the rampage and what to do about it? Part of me wants this to be a refuge from the storm. But currently a bigger part is feeling like maybe we should really talk about this, at least address it in some way. There's waking up from the dream and there's making the dream better. Both are important, but right now the latter seems to be more important. It's like we're having a nice little Dharma and dreams discussion and meanwhile a band of demons dressed as riot cops are on the rampage just outside, tear gassing protesters and killing black people. I have two carefully curated Twitter feeds. One is currently mostly concerned with politics, climate change, the pandemic, etc. The other, at Lucid Virtuality, is concerned with lucid dreaming, virtual reality, and related matters. Recently, my lucid virtuality feed has become largely dominated with political matters because shit is hitting the fan. Some people slash organizations I follow are meaningfully addressing what's happening. Others are completely ignoring it, and that's starting to feel off to me. And then I give some examples of recent posts from the Andrew Holacek Twitter account, which is great stuff. I really enjoy it and find them inspirational. But just lately, I've noticed that it stands out in terms of um, the contrast with what a lot sure. of my other people there are posting. Yeah. And so I, I give some examples in the thread. And then I post one that I retweeted with my own comment. And so in the uh, original tweet um, from the Andrew Holcheck feed, it shows a picture of a woman sitting on a mountaintop, you know, looking at this amazing expansive view with the quote, waking consciousness is dreaming, but dreaming constrained by external reality by Oliver Sacks. And I commented, alternate caption, sitting on her mountain of privilege, blissfully contemplating her dreamy reality as far below America descends deeper into nightmare. The constraints of each external reality are grim. How do we improve the dream of waking reality practically right now? Um, and then I continue, uh, look, I love all of these quotes and I enjoy Andrew's Twitter feed, but it seems a little tone deaf in light of the current context. And then I give a bunch of examples of other stuff that's been in my Twitter feed that normally not people that are posting political stuff, but people who are now very engaged in what's happening and sort of trying to help in their own way. And then I conclude, anyway, if you've read this far, I'd love to hear what you think and feel about all this. Thank you, Arthur. A couple things, um, little disclosure here. I do zero social media. Okay. Uh, I mean, you can tell like how often am I on the discourse platform, right? Yeah. <laughs> and that's like my personal one. So in, what you're saying is, is interesting. I, I don't, this Twitter feed is set up weeks, if not months in advance. And this is a good point. Maybe, maybe we, I need to be a little bit more judicious in terms of what I'm posting because it could, it could be, you know, in fact, it's probably coming across as an intimation of where I am and what's really happening. So that's a little bit, it's not an excuse, it's just an explanation that literally I do zero social media. And, you know, we kind of feed this into a, a conveyor belt and it just gets churned out. Um, second thing I want to say, Andy Katz actually, our, our wonderful um, tech guy, mentioned this and you intimated it. I also want to come back to this. Here we are 
you, me, Joseph Parent, all three of us white privileged guys. Um, and we have no idea what it's like to be a black person in this country. We have open, relatively open empathetic hearts, but none of us really know what it's like to be just terrified when you step outside, especially in an inner city and not knowing if you're gonna survive through the day. So I, I like what you said there, kind of a full disclosure that is very easy for armchair philosophers, thinkers like us to sit back and decree these kind of truths when fundamentally, um, just like me, yeah, kind of, sort of, maybe, but really? So we try, right? That's why we do Tonglen. That's why we do these practices so that we can't open to this extent. And I think eventually we can, but relatively, do any of us really know what it's like to be a George Floyd? Whew, I mean, who knows? So thank you, dear friend, very much. I'm going to now invite Joe, who I think is online, to say he had some really interesting comments that he sent to me. I'm going to invite him. And then if Myra's online, and then we'll just open it up. Um, obviously, this is a format where we can talk about anything, but I completely agree with what Arthur's saying here. Seems a bit disingenuous when the elephant is, is you know, on the room and the elephant is sitting on our necks to not um, spend time addressing this. So Joseph, if you're there, my dear friend, give me your best 300 yard drive here, amigo. <laughs> Well, I'm going to I'm going to start by taking a page out of your book and reading a quote. Oh, that's dangerous. Usually don't do so much, but this is from Trumper Rinpoche. <clears throat> Something he wrote in 1969. Um, and that is actually I don't know this first part, the second part is people involved with the spiritual discipline have a tendency to want nothing to do with their ordinary life. They regard politics as something secular and undesirable, dirty or something. So to begin with, well, if a person comes with a sense of responsibility to society, that would be a Buddhist approach to politics. Mm -hmm. So I, I wanna um, respond to Arthur's comment and, and recognize that, that the notion of spiritual bypass and, and this, um, uh, <laughs> I remember Pema saying, uh, somebody came to her and said, what do I do with all these people who are in my sacred world? <laughs> all these terrible people who are in my sacred world. So, so I thought that was, that was pretty humorous. Now this is from 1969 from Um All So many countries being Americanized and developed with machinery and organization that the whole thing has grown so big that to some people it's very frightening. Living in such a world, we have to be practical. Talk, talk about, talk about uh, prophetic, okay? We cannot afford to divide society up into those who practice meditation and those who are workers, those who work in the factories and those who are intellectuals. We can't afford anymore. The world is too small. And this is in 1969, we have arrived at an age where the study of great wisdom, religion, tradition, however important they are, is not enough. There is one more urgent thing we have to do. We must create a structure which allows real communication. We have to see that the answer is not one of spirituality alone any more than it is one of politics alone. Mm -hmm. so, um, so that's putting those things together. And, and, you know, in our path, we start with individual liberation. 
if we don't if we don't have our minds clear, then trying to help somebody some often causes more trouble. Um, I remember, you know, the the Peace Corps went to a, a very impoverished area and said, oh, "I see the problem. You have wooden plows. We'll give you steel plows." And they cut all the furrows really, really deep, and the plants, the crops looked like they were going to be more healthy. But they didn't take into account the monsoons, and the rains came and washed all the topsoil away. And instead of a meager crop, it was barren. So um, it reminds me of a quote from the Vajra Regent, who said, good intentions mixed with confusion are a recipe for disaster. Mm -hmm. So we can't go to swing the pendulum too far one side or the other, but we really have to be clear for ourselves and be practitioners and have that wakefulness, that lucidity to know, to discriminate the dharmas and know what it is that we can say something about and what it is that really we don't understand and need to learn, learn more. And of course, we should always seek to understand before seeking to be understood. Now, um, if we look back, even the past lives of the Buddha, um, he found a situation where he had to intervene. Otherwise, hundreds of people would have been killed. And he was willing to take on that karma to save the other people, of a karma of a negative act to save the other people. And um, going back to our own practice and, and uh, Andrew talking about Tonglen, which is part of the Lojong practices, this communication that Trungpa Rinpoche was talking about. We have a, a saying in the Tonglen tradition, the Lojong tradition, drive all blames into one, into oneself. But what that means, that doesn't mean you can't communicate accurately. And the example he gave is when you see a company dumping uh, pollution into a river, you can protest, you can communicate, but you start with diffusing the negativity and saying, you know, I may be particularly sensitive, but the water is really bad. <laughs> so you start by taking the blame, but then you point things out in a way that's accurate, precise and accurate. Now, the last thing that, that I want to say is something about um, what the, the communication that happens in society and what's happening now. Besides the bizarre things coming out of the so-called leadership, they, they, you always think that, okay, that, this has hit the most bizarre they could be. And surprise, more bizarre today. It, it, it's, it's, it's truly shocking. And as a psychologist, I, I, I would never diagnose somebody uh, from, a, from a distance, but all the patterns point to um, uh, sociopathic and almost psychopathic behaviors. And, and that's really, really scary. Um, but the, and, and we have to be, the, the key is to be able to communicate that and say, you know, I may be sensitive, but this is crazy stuff. And it's not just myth, it's not just falsehoods and uh, misrepresentations, it's crazy stuff. And we have to call it for what it is. Now, the last thing I wanna say is about civil disobedience. Thich Nhat Hanh, this is a Buddhist tradition from Thich Nhat Hanh in Vietnam. And 
uh, I'm old enough that I was in the protests in 1968. And I was in the March on Washington and was tear gassed. Um, the Thich Nhat Hanh, the Gandhi, Gandhi's nonviolent protests in India, Martin Luther King, the peaceful demonstrations were interesting to people. But what they sat up and took notice of was the violent response. Mm. That was the thing. And, and, and um, the protesters were nonviolent, but what really swayed public opinion in all the cases, from Gandhi to Thich Nhat Hanh to Martin Luther King, was the violent reaction of authorities that shocked people's sensibilities. So the, it's, it's like the turning point in the current situation. One of them was gassing and forceful dislocation of peaceful protests for a Bible raising photo op. Um, and one black commentator pointed out the razor's edge of this situation. And that's something for us to, to discuss. She didn't condone violence or looting, but she said, would there have been this level of raised awareness would um, if, if there were only peaceful parades, would, if there wasn't police overreaction, would, would mayors in many of the cities have cleaned house of their police department and, and some of the, uh, the people who uh, enabled the, um, the brutality. So it, it's really a razor's edge in that way of peaceful, peacefulness, violence, what, what level is necessary to wake people up? And, um, and the last thing I, I wanted to say is another quote by Trumper Mouche. Uh, in response to a question about his behavior, and he said, sometimes you have to insult in order to communicate. Yeah. Yeah, thank you, it was a perfect, perfect. So Myra, um, thank you, my dear friend. Myra, by the way, the backdrop is Sedona. I love it. I love what you're popping up there. So this is where we do our dream yoga retreat. Still on for November, um, October, but yeah, that's from- I'm trying to keep to 10 minutes. Yeah, I love it. Thanks for the uh, option, opportunity, I should say. Myra, if you're there and, and want to say something, uh, I want to turn it to you. If not, we can just open it up for virtually anything, questions, comments, other offerings. Um, Andy can make you know those kind of choices, but um, yes, I'm here. How is how is everybody? <laughs> of course, I'm here. <laughs> I'm like a shadow nowadays. <laughs> um, no, I was really touched, and I think it was so deep. Both uh, comments that were added that um, that I'm deeply uh, moved by the courage that you and your group are having to touch. Uh, this subject because this is who we are and this is what we're projecting and we have to take Responsibility for the moment and know that this is the moment to re not react but do something different Which is what we've been talking about dreams and battles. Yeah. So what an extraordinary opportunity to shine and to let the light come through and um, I was looking, um, remembering a tipping point, and there's something about this volcano that feels different. Huh. And I do not know. There is like a collective um, energy that we are feeling, and it's tapping into the best and worst of all of us. So I just pray um, 
and imagine our mandala being just in the perfect condition right now. And I thank you for the opportunity to bring these issues and for this group, what you're generating, because you know that takes a lot of energy. So thank you. <laughs> yeah, welcome, and thanks for saying that. And again, I just, I really want to say yet again that fundamentally really take a very, very close look at, at what you do, what's happening in the world. Just cut through the appearances, you know, and, and really keep asking, what am I really doing here? Who's, who's really doing it? And you're going to come down, you're going to cut, chip, erode, cut away, cut away all the seeming truths to cut to the real truth, which is it's fundamentally spiritual issues. I mean, ev everything that's happening is a spiritual issue um, based on a sense of deficiency, lack, worthlessness, and the like. And and one thought. more thing. No, and just for everybody knows that I work in immigration and this is what we see on TV. This is where my clients work and feel everything. Mm -hmm. And not to forget the people that are at the border, that this is their daily lives. And we still, they're still too far from us. And the difference between this is that we saw it. So we had the visual perception yeah. and we were able to see it. But this this is the new reality and we are responsible it's all our doing that is that's what we're seeing it otherwise we cannot see it yeah it's one of the great gifts of the transparency of the tech revolution i mean there's uh, there's obviously tremendous shadow elements to all this tech but the accountability the transparency i mean really if if this wouldn't have been videotaped none of this probably would be happening and just what's what's was just horrifying is how many countless thousands of times exactly this sort of thing happens continues to happen and ha has happened and right now yes. we we are having the this really painful opportunity to see these um displays that then we can perhaps take to heart and start to act from so at, at this point thank you so much Mara. at this point really it's just an open forum like it always is um, I, I'm willing to address any question, as is Joe or Myra or, or anybody else. But if there are others who are on who want to make an offering, um, suggest, ask, whatever, you know, that's the kind of the nature of what we do here. So open play. Wait, we have quite a few hands raised. Uh, so I'll start with Rana. Um. Hi. Hi. I have an offering. Beautiful. And the only reason is because I'm from Iran and 40 years ago. I'm so embarrassed to acknowledge that, that I marched against Shah of Iran because I was young and stupid. And I was not Muslim. But I was, you know, I wanted something good to happen. But I did not know the history. I did not know the history of my own country. And that causes what we are experiencing now in Iran. I think we need to practice patience. It's the most difficult with whatever is happening, it's most difficult to be patient and hold the seat because it just, it tossed me to the ceiling every minute. But if we don't include the history of what it happened and go slowly 
and uh, wisely we're going to repeat the history. Um, so I just want to say, share that. Thank you for allowing me. Thank you, Rana. Thank you for that beautiful offering. Painful, beautiful offering. Thank you. And uh, next up is uh, Charles Lee. Hello. Hi. Hey. Can you hear me? How you doing, man? Hi. Yeah. Is it Char um, Charles Lee? Cool. Yeah, Charles Lee. Yep. Love the rainbow, um, dude. Oh, thanks. Thanks. Yeah, I'm in New Mexico, so we were blessed with a little bit of rain and a little bit of clouds. So we, yeah, we had rainbows a couple of days in a row. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So um, thank you for, um, you know, for these talks. And I, uh, you know, I was drawn to mindfulness practice, kind of Buddhist perspective, really from the intellectual uh, aspect. So, uh, so I really appreciate your, your talks are very, very dense and, you know, send me, send me to the library very often. Um, but I did want to uh, address um, uh, a phrase, uh, a phrase that I heard, which is uh, uh, kind of, I guess, related to Pema Chondron's Just Like Me. And uh, I think a phrase that I use, that I have used often, which is, I can't imagine what that must be like for you. Yeah. And that, that phrase is, it's one of these uh, uh, kind of, uh, it's kind of just like saying, you know, hello, how are you? Oh, I'm fine. You know, oh, hello. It's, it's very, um, I got a ver an excellent teaching at New York Insight Meditation from a teacher, John Aaron, who said to try on actually saying, I can imagine what that might be like. Yeah. Um, because that, and I've, 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 I've done that a little bit, um, but it's like, you know, I can imagine you know, being George Floyd's father and, you know, getting a call that, you know, my son is dead. I can't imagine um, it. it uh, I think that might help folks take that next step of, of really um, empathizing. Because what, what I've appreciated about mindfulness is this, it, it's mind, it's heart, mind, body training. Yeah. Um, the ability to to, to control your awareness, to determine what you, what you pay attention to and what you don't pay attention to. And I've been meditating for a couple of years now, and I have experimented, you know, I've gotten to the point where I've experimented with purposefully bringing up difficult situations Beautiful. to work with them. Beautiful. In order to work with them, in order to, you know, to get grounded in my breath, get grounded in open awareness, and then purposely begin to touch that thing that really that, that I have real reactivity to, um, and I think so. So so this has been one of the things I've been doing of late, which is really saying you know because I, I think you know you know we all go to funerals, we all you know know somebody who's had you know a family member die too soon, and and I think the nice thing we don't want to offend anybody. We say oh I can't imagine what that must be like, but uh, I encourage everybody to at some point try on either going further because it tends to arrest the conversation but go further ask them maybe even if you say i can't understand i i i can't imagine how that must feel but why don't you help me try or why don't you tell me how that feels mm -hmm. or even say to yourself you know what i, I can't imagine how that feels and think about 
what that might feel like and what arises in the body. Um, and so that, that was my, you know, that was my uh, comment was to pass on that teaching from New York Insight meditation teacher, John Aaron. Yeah, Charles Lee, that's beautiful. You know, a couple of things come to mind, you know, your, your incredible intuition to bring unwanted experiences within the otherwise pristine sanctuary of your meditation, believe it or not, there's a whole battery of practices like that called reverse meditations that I, I riff a lot on these sorts of things. You know, you create your little environment using certain practices like open awareness. And then within that, then you bring in the so-called unwanted. And then you work just like you're saying, it's fantastic. You work, that's the inner work of establishing a relationship to unwanted experiences. So um, beautiful. And the other thing it's, it's cool that I send you to the library. That's kind of cool, but if I can send you to your heart, uh, maybe that's something I need to pay more, pay more attention to. If I can send you to you to the library to look for your heart, then maybe I'll be doing some good. So thanks, thanks for your contributions, my friend. <laughs> that's awesome. Okay, uh, next, um, give the audio to Ted. Hi, Andrew. Hey, Ted. Um, you know, I'm truly moved by this group and their insights. And I've been very fortunate that I've been practicing Tonglen for 20 plus years. And I think Joseph's comment is where I am. And I'm, I probably didn't write it down exactly right, but good intentions mixed with confusion is a recipe for disaster. And I, you know, I, I have uh, one of my long-term teachers has an expression, dispassionate observation. And I've always, I've always struggled with that because mm -hmm. to me it's compassionate observation. And I, I talked to him on, on one occasion, we really went into it. And the dispassionate is not having empathy for someone it's not jumping into the river of samsara. And, you know, our little group here, and, and you know, and I'm a privileged white man um, living up in the Rocky Mountains, really far away from what we watch on the news. I, like you, I'm not involved in any way in social media. Um, and, but I do watch the news as a practice. Um, and, you know, I've been through in my 74 years, you know, Korea, uh, Nixon, Vietnam, um, you know, 9-11, um, you know, and on and on. And, and there's this, there's this sense of just observing and not knowing what to do. And when our group met on Monday night, we talked exactly about this. And one of the things that came out of that discussion, which may be helpful um, to, to other people, is that this is truly an opportunity for us to look at our own practice, at the depth of our practice, and to recognize that we need to keep practicing. And you know the 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 
the one of the only things that I feel that I can do is to remain calm in this. But again, I'm living in a fairly calm area. So there's not a lot of um, disruption. There's not a lot of marching. There's not a lot of violence. Um, And exercise my vote uh, when have the opportunity and so on. But again, I'll go back to Joseph's comment that I'm right here. Good intentions mixed with confusion is a recipe for disaster. So I, I just don't, I try and not get into the mix of it. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Ted. And, and you know, it's really when you say keep practicing, for me, keep practicing translates to keep relating, keep relating. Because meditation really, one of the ways to look at it um, is just the, the invitation for proper relationship, is it not? Because otherwise, you know, we don't relate to our mind, we relate from it. And that's no relationship at all. That's, that's immersion, that's non-lucidity, that's reactivity. So to keep practicing to me is keep relating and doing things like what Charles Lee was saying is that, you know, when the crap comes up, can we re- in fact relate to that? Can we, uh, can our minds and hearts be big enough to accommodate that? Not in, in, a, in a, the near enemy of naive acquiescence, um, where, you know, the near enemy of this is just like you're saying, uh, Nisargadatta Maharaj once said, you know, it is disinterestedness that liberates. Well, that's a really interesting comment. On one level, yeah, it's disinterestedness and the projections, the displays and neurosis, but you see where the near enemy of that is. Uh, you know, I'm disinterested, you know, that's samsara, I don't care. Well, we always need to remember samsara is not out there. Samsara is not a state in reality. Samsara is a state of mind born from inappropriate relationship. And so to keep practicing to, keep practicing to me, Ted, means keep relating. Open my heart and mind even bigger so that in fact I can relate instead of react. So thank you, my friend, for the wonderful contribution. Oh, can I make a comment, Andrew? Um, this is in response to Charles Lee, and <clears throat> um, it, it relates to the, uh, I loved what you said, I can't imagine. That is so great to actually try to put yourself in another person's place rather than just say, well, I can't imagine. So there's this gulf or divide. I love that. And it, it made me think of... Uh, a movie that was based on a novel from the early 60s called Black Like Me. And it's based on a journalist who actually did this in 1959, disguised himself as a black man in the Deep South to experience what it was like. And it's horrifying and truly, truly horrifying. And what's dismaying to me is that this gets communicated, but clearly ineffectively again and again and again in our society. Uh, and and it, you, you know, I wonder if we're getting to the tipping point of how many times before something fundamental, radically different needs to happen because homilies haven't changed how things are for you know, you, you want to say since the 60s, since the 1860s, since the 1660s, really? 
it, it's a fundamental part of our culture that we have to unpack and maybe dismantle. And what will that look like? And how can we um, contribute to, you know, share in that? And I, I as I said, Charles, will you, the only way to do that is to say, I can imagine, and then speak on behalf, uh, speak along with, not on behalf of, or not from some pedestal about. Thank you, Joe. Anybody else? Sorry to get a little heavy. No, it, it's, it's a heavy, heavy time. Heavy yeah, yeah. Um, next, uh, I'll give the audio to Alex Carrillo. Okay, Alex. Hi, hi, thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, I just wanted to introduce myself. I'm, uh, my name is Alex Alejandro Carrillo. I'm, uh, I'm uh, from Mexico City. I'm here in, in Mexico City. And, uh, I just wanted to say thank you because of I, I, I ever since I follow the webinars on how to turn obstacles into opportunities, I, uh, I, I've been having my meditation practice for a few years now on and off, uh, dealing with a lot of life issues, uh, dealing with a lot, a lot of challenges. And ever since I, I saw those webinars, I felt so inspired to, to ramp my practice up. Uh, so it's been ever since more or less few weeks now that I've been practicing for three, three times a day. That's great. Like short sessions, because that's what you say there. Uh, short sessions can be as powerful as long sessions or even more so i thought well i i i have a hold of short sessions i don't have a hold for long sessions i i struggle a lot to sit down and meditate for an hour for example i can't mm -hmm. and it's been quite 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 amazing what has been happening with me andrew it's quite amazing it's it just seems that like the dream world reflects on my meditation practice. Mm. It's, it's like the thermometer, like in my everyday, I don't know how to call it, real bard or whatever. Right. It's great. I, I feel great because my meditation, that's why I meditate, to feel good, to, to, to deal with my issues, which... I have plenty of them, you know, but it's amazing what's going on there. It's, it's kind of, uh, I can't, I can't believe it. Mm. And I'm, I'm very, very grateful for that. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Andrew. And thank you very much, everybody else for being here today. Thank you. That's beautiful. Thank you, my dear friend, for sharing that. That's, that's really moving, really touching. Muchas gracias, amigo. Next up, uh, Suzanne. Yeah. Thank you. Um, and thank you, uh, Andrew. Um, we've met a couple of times in Boston when you've been to Boston. Um, 
since the whole uh, arena of politics came up, I just want to add a perspective. Please. Um, I was a um, state legislator for 10 years and watched the change, especially after 2010, watched the change in the demeanor of people in how politics played out. This is with the rise of the Tea Party. There was a real change. But uh, I think I started like in 2005 and I hadn't intersected with Buddhism yet. But after I did and really got into it, I never walked into the state house without my practice. Oh. Never. It was my companion. Oh. And my reactivity to the politics, to the statements that people made, especially during debates, um, it felt to me like almost like a, a, the analogy I could use is a coffee press where the reactivity was pressed down and only the calmer, more positive response was possible um, when I saw my colleagues on my side of the aisle get all in a hurry flurry and, and I was just pressing my coffee press down. And, um, you know, at some point after a couple of, we have two year cycles in the legislature and after a couple of sessions, I, I thought, well, maybe I won't run again. And my teacher, um, you probably know her, Lama Willa. Oh, she's awesome. Yes. Totally. Yeah. Um, I'm in New Hampshire, where live free or die is the motto, right? Um, and she said to me, no, no, I think you should run again. She said, um, everything, this is almost her word for word, um, everything changes when a practitioner's in the room. Mm, wow. And that stayed with me. That was one of the big reasons. And my... Uh, my connection with Tara, Green Tara, yeah. that got me to run again. And um, the thing is, it, and I, I think it's, I think it does make a difference when there's a practitioner in politics. And I would love to see more people run local, state, especially locally. Um, I actually wrote a piece in Tricycle Online that you could find in the archives about how to do it. Um, and I just would encourage anyone who has the slightest interest in either being on the school board or city council, town hall, whatever, um, to give it a try and, and bring your practice into the town center. Yeah, Suzanne, that's really, that's really beautiful. I'm sure you, you're familiar with Tim Ryan, right? You know, yes. Yes. Mindful, Mindful Nation. Yes. Of course. Yeah, that's a bit of a manifesto at this time. But yeah, I, I totally remember you. So nice to see you again. Yeah. Next time you see Lama Willa, send her my best. And what a wonderful um, offering. Thank you, my dear. Yeah, thanks. And um, next is Deborah. Hi. Um, Andrew, thank you for these classes or the, these open discussions. Um, Welcome. I'm in your Bardo class. And um, I would like to have taken the the one with Bob, but I have guests for these two weeks, so it didn't work out in timing. Yeah. But my yeah, my question is, um, I have a, a really good friend who's um, 
he's a chaplain, and he says that the reason he, he can't go with this non-duality thing is because of evil. And I don't really have a good answer because I don't know Buddhism well enough. So what is the Buddhist take, you know, given that there are um, sentient beings of all kinds, not just in, embodied, what is the nature of evil? And of course, we're all responsible for our choices, but how does that play a role, like with Hitler or with sure. whatever? Yeah, yeah beautiful. You. Yeah, um, really good one. So, you know, this comes down to the fundamental issue. And again, this is what it's, it's also, again, revelatory, because when you come down to fundamentally everything, it really does become a spiritual issue. And so fundamentally, evil, there's no such thing as evil. Evil is just reified con um, confusion, reified ignorance. And what happens that's so unfortunate is, you know, ego, by nature, ego is the archetype of reification. Remember, reification is to make real, to make solid, to reify, to solidify, to concretize. That's just ego's default mode network because that's what ego is. And so unfortunately, we take this thing called ignorance. And so let's even backpedal just a little bit. So here it is. So here's evil. What's this thing called evil? Well, if we get stuck at the superficial level of evil, you're going to get wars and eradication of evil. And actually, take it, you, you can take this all the way back. Like, you know, as far as I can track it back, uh, Zoro, um, Zoroastrianism, yeah. first tradition that I'm aware of that separates reality in, into uh, light and dark. Ahura Mazda, light, and Angramanyu, the dark. And so what's really important, especially from the non-dual perspective, um, so even below evil is this thing called ignorance. Well, there isn't really even ignorance. And that's a problem with Buddhism because Buddhism tends to reify ignorances. The first Nadama, everything is born from ignorance. Well, well no, it's not. Ignorance, what the, really the way to unpack this is ignorance is just partial knowing. And then you de-reify it. All of a sudden it becomes more workable. Otherwise you have this adversarial and then contentious relationship to a reified illusion fundamentally. So, there's no such thing as evil, there's just reified confusion. There's no such thing as confusion or ignorance, there's just partial knowing. And so therefore the issue is one of pedagogy, knowing, the knowing the nature of mind, knowing the nature of reality. And so Hitler behaved, you know, Hitler on a level without dismissing him, you can explain Hitler's, Hitler's behavior. I mean, it was his attempt based on his inability to relate to his own being, this profound sense of deficiency and lack, he felt that you know, he could not accept the world the way it was, which fundamentally at the deepest levels is perfectly pure and complete. It wasn't perfectly pure and, and perfect and complete for him. So he wanted to make the world in his perfect image, right? The final solution, the Third Reich. It may seem like you know, a facile sort of reductionism, but it's not, it's not. And so that's the way to approach that. There is no such thing as evil. Evil is just reified confusion, reified ignorance. Ignorance, there really, that doesn't even exist. There's just partial knowing. So let's work with knowing. Let's just learn to know more. And so therefore the issue all the way, turtles all the way down and turtles all the way up is reification or de-reification. You know, taking it, taking it apart, deconstructing as Joseph was talking about deconstructing this thing called evil. What is it exactly? Deconstructing this thing called ignorance. What is it exactly? And then you get down to something that's really workable and therefore really empowering. Oh, I can work with partial knowing, yes. 
Personal knowing, let's learn a little bit more. Let's become, I mean, Gnostic in the deepest sense. And then the, from that perspective, fundamentally, everything becomes workable because you're getting down to the foundations of reality instead of your projections, hopes, and fears of what reality should be. So well, let me just ask one little twist on that. And sure. since, uh, you know, we're not separate and, and this reality we know is not the only reality. So this is not really my worldview, but it's other, other people. Let, let's say this, this evil, this, this, this partially, partially, you're saying partially awakened being. Partially aware. Partially aware being, non-embodied, non who was whispering in um, um, uh, Hitler's ear, you know, you know, you get the picture, that yeah. whispering in my ear telling me, you know, but taking hold of me in ways that I don't know how to control. So, I mean, not that this is what I think, but there is this argument out there especially among some of my Christian friends. And so I don't know, I never know what to say when they get on this role. It's it not just take, a human evil. Yeah, it didn't, well, first of all, it didn't take hold of you. You took hold of it. Okay. That's the big difference. Okay. It didn't take hold of you. You took hold of it. It doesn't have that power. Nothing in the phenomenal world has that kind of power unless you unconsciously, unwittingly imbue it with that power. Okay. Nothing can take a hold of you unless you take a hold of it. And so if you, re if you just understand that, again, you just realize, yes, there's certain thoughts that we would, you know, provisionally define as negative or unwanted, but, but fundamentally, even that isn't there when you go down far enough. And this may seem outrageous, but fundamentally, there's no such thing as a negative emotion. There's just energy related to inappropriately. And that might seem like, well, this is some armchair philosophy. No, it's not. This is the basis of all human suffering. It all comes down to these foundational tenets. So this is this type of reductionism, which really isn't reductionism, it's elevationism. It's empowering. Because then this confers, this is a transfer of power back to its rightful source, which is you. The world only has the power to affect you if you imbue it with that power. If you take that transfer of power and bring it back to its rightful owner, owning up, then you fundamentally, you become, in, in the deepest sense, this is omnipotence. You become omnipotent, not because you can control everything in the phenomenal world, but because you can control your relationship to what arises in the phenomenal world, see? Okay, I like that word, relationship. Okay, thank you very much, Andy. Yeah, great questions as usual, I appreciate it. Well, thank you. Bye. Thanks. And next, I'll give the audio to Amber. Hello. Hi, Hi Amber. Hi, hey, Andrew. Nice to see you. Okay, all my friends from Sedona are popping up. It's awesome. Oh, yeah. Good to see you, too. Uh, so a couple weeks ago in this class, you mentioned that people with mental illness are actually more in touch with reality. Maybe. And maybe. Maybe. Not, not categorically. Not everybody. No, no, no. Okay. Let, let me just stop you right there. And then I'll let you continue. But yes, there are um, certain types of so-called mental pathology and even mental disorder really is, what is this? It's just a matter of degree. On one level, we're all mentally ill. <laughs> if you think your thoughts are real, you're mentally ill. If you think the world is independent of you, you're mentally ill. And so degrees of, of pathology are basically, again, there's a narrative of, again, degrees of reification, degrees of inappropriate relationships. So I'm not saying that all beings mentally ill 
are more in contact with reality. Um, but there are certain people that are really more vulnerable, more open. And again, this is not just me, it's research studies have indicated this as well. So I just wanted to clarify that before, um, didn't mean to totally cut you off, but I want to just clarify that. Okay, that makes sense. So that's okay. not a blanket statement. Right. Um, as a mental health and addiction counselor, I find this fascinating and would like more information to share with my community. Sure. Can you share any more about this or share resources? About just, uh, just that some people with mental illness might be more in touch with reality. Oh, yeah. Read, read um, R.D. Lang. Uh, read maybe Joseph. I'm going to throw this Joseph's way. Maybe he can come up with something. The Vajadara is one of the great gifts of Trungpa Rinpoche that sometimes gets a little bit criticized, um, the kind of psychologizing of the Dharma, that, you know, it's a reason at Naropa University, the, the master's psych psychology program still is, it's like one of the strongest components. He was very deeply interested in the relationship of psycho psychology to spirituality. And even though he didn't really articulate it this following way, it certainly implied that, you know, psycho-spiritual development just occurs along a spectrum and he deeply was respectful of that. So maybe Joseph can come up with specific, we're doing a little mental Rolodex here to see what specifically the Vajara might have written, but Ardi Lang, um, uh, you know, Amber, let me, I could probably come up with some sources and, and now that I know you're asking it, I can probably get back to you with very specific references. Okay. Um, but actually going right to a, a specific title, Ken Wilber talks about this a lot. Again, in, in his 30 books, I don't know which one talks about it the most. Probably Integral Psychology talks about it, maybe Integral Spirituality. Um, John Wellwood, you know, basically, here's my riff on this. I think if you just take a look at the kind of um, the psychologist spiritual masters or the really sensitive psychologist spiritual people, you know, like uh, Artie Lang, John Wellwood, Almas, Mark Epstein, um, Jack Cornfield to a certain degree, maybe not so much. You will, you will find this narrative pretty much inherent in most people who work in this arena. But I'm curious, Joseph, if, something, if you have something to say, you can chime in, but just off the top of my head, that's what well, I'm you know, it, it, um, We go back to the concept of crazy wisdom. Mm. Or wisdom gone, wisdom gone crazy. That that uh, is uh, essentially the hallmark of Trungpa's teachings. Um, John Wellwood was actually a meditation student of mine in one of really? the yeah in psychology classes in uh, uh, when I was teaching at Naropa, uh, and and so you know uh, we and and of course we have. Well, not of course, this was in the 1970s. We had a um, center for Buddhist psychology called Maitri Center, right. Right. Uh, in which we worked with the um, five energies or five, five uh, enlightened energies and the, the flip side of the five neurotic energies in the Tibetan tantric tradition. Yeah. So, yeah. <clears throat> so it, it always comes, uh, to a breakdown and the enlightened direction is breaking down this artificial sense of separation of self and other. Um, and, and so, you know, you could say, well, if there, if you 
completely lose your sense of self, isn't that sort of the same as somebody being psychotic and losing that, losing that reference point? Yeah. And, and that's why the, the term crazy wisdom, uh, the, the difference is that the, um, the breakdown of the separation expands our sense of identity into not the small self, but the big uh, so-called self of uh, undifferentiated, uh, the, the total field. The thing is that it is, one, it is one field of experience, but at the same time, all the dharmas are discriminated and distinct. Mm -hmm. As opposed to the breakdown of connection with anything other than a, a psychologically created reality that is that is in fact completely separated from everything else in in, in the universe yeah. so so that's why they have uh, you know Andrew you you talk a lot about near enemies and and this is um, kind of the near breakdown yeah but is it a breakdown in the sense of separating oneself from reality completely or is it a breakdown of a of the separation the of the duality so that we can actually experience absolute reality and relative reality simultaneously yeah that's well said as opposed to a complete breakdown from relative reality and yeah. and true absolute reality yeah that's really well said. The other things that come to mind here, Amber, thank you, Joe, is um, Jack Engler, psychiatrist, um, you know, who famously wrote, you have to be somebody before you can be nobody. Look at his work. Um, Transformations of Consciousness comes to mind, anthology with uh, Jack Engler, um, Ken Wilber, who else? And then also the work of Ed Podval, I can't remember, maybe Joe remembers the name, Ed, who actually went into a lifetime retreat and then um, unfortunately came out to basically die from cancer. He wrote, a, and I cannot remember the name of it, but Ed Podval, who was involved along with Marvin Casper in creating things like the Maitri Rooms, um, where you actually go into these specially prepared rooms to heighten these energies as, as a way to see, as Joe was suggesting, that these five primordial energies um, arise in a fundamentally purified way, what we know as the five Buddha family. So anything along those topics as well, the work of Arini Rockwell, if it's related to properly, it's just a manifestation of the awakened mind. Again, if it's related to contracted against inappropriately, those become the five principal poisons, passion, aggression, ignorance, jealousy. Um, so I think Amber at Podvol, P-O-D-V-O-L, Marvin Casper, Arini Rockwell, um, anything that deals with the five wisdom energies, I think will be um, sending you in the right direction. So terrific. Okay. Okay. Thank you. It can be okay. awakened mind or poison. I just well wanted said. to add, and okay, remember, it's nice to see you again. Yes, for to see you too. And if you'd like to communicate with me directly about it, I worked with Ed and Marvin and uh, built the first Maitri rooms. So okay. uh, I'm happy to talk with you about that. Thanks, okay. Joe. Cool. Okay. Thank you, Joe. All right, folks, a couple more, if there's still some in line. Oh, yeah. Uh, Judith has been waiting for a bit. And uh, Judith, 
You'll have the audio. Make sure you unmute. Um, can you hear me now? Yeah, there you go. Oh, great. Thanks so much. I was so pleased, Andrew, that you brought up this, what's going on in this country at the moment. Um, it, it was almost, to me, it, it's been almost a relief that this has happened because there's just so much suffering that it's out now and we can, we can see how bad it is. And, you know, when I think about the refugees in, uh, on the border and I think about all these children in the wars in Syria or wherever, uh, there's just so much. And I just, I just like to read this poem. It's about a little boy in Ahmed, a uh, little boy called Ahmed in Aleppo when they were cleaning up the rubble. Born into bedlam and boy time, your scrawny chest entrapped, barely beating out of the rubble, set concrete around you. The cries, the drill cutting into the casket of rock at your waist. Men shouting, don't sleep, Ahmed. Keep reciting, you can do it, don't sleep. They broke you free. Your siblings and parents crushed beneath lacerated walls. Ahmed, we have seen you. We have seen your blood-stained face. We know your playmates have gone. We hold you here, right here in our hearts. Rise up against hate. Rise up for love. We cannot ask you to forgive. Who are we who live in comfort to say anything? And that just goes to the, the, the what he brought up about um, not saying, um, I can't imagine how you feel. It's all, that's almost like an eject button. You know, it, it, it's not going there. And, and to say, to say I, I want to imagine or I can imagine takes you to a completely different place. Mm. That was really, really wonderful. Mm. Thank you. Thank you, Judah. Thanks for the wonderful offering. Appreciate it. Lovely. Um, David, you have the audio. Um, thank you. Um, first off, uh, uh, I'm so glad that we've started this conversation that was came out of what's going on around us with um, the, the physical situation in, in the United States right now. And um, uh, and I'm, I'm glad it's there with, with Joseph. Um, Joseph, you might remember me from the um, 70s in, in, in Norpa, Boulder. Norpa House. That's right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so nice to hear from you uh, again. <laughs> uh, then I was Peregrine. Now I, I, I use uh, Garuda sometimes uh, as a Skype name. <laughs> um, um, Anyway, um, so my concern is, is looking at how, what we're doing with uh, um, our racism with the way that it, it's so interconnected with all the other ways that we're destroying um, our society's uh, biological ability to survive and that we keep on designing our society uh, in ways that 
overconsume and dominate. Yeah. And, and uh, it's one, one analogy for the use of, of carbon fuels is that they are now our energy slaves. And we had so many, you know, we, we call it horsepower. Uh, and sometimes because you know, of the domination of the horses uh, and other times it was the slave power. And so in, we tend to, once we get a technology, we use it until uh, it exhausts the, the physical world around us. And it, from the earliest times we've had these technologies, we've done it again and again and again and we're doing it at exponentially faster rates and you know you talked about going back to the perhaps the 1600s and the way we'd relate to it but you know we can take it right back to the sumerians when the first time that they had irrigation um and the plow and uh axes and they destroyed the forest and they made the fertile crescent into uh deserts and and it took them about 5,000 years to, to do that, but it hasn't uh, uh, rebounded in the next 5,000. And so my, my question is, uh, you know, we're, we're in a, a real crisis. And part of the crisis is the, the, the way we, we treat other humans, but we also treat everything around us that same way. Yeah. And it, the, 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 to me, the, the biggest issue is not about how we feel about it, um, uh, it is how we use that understanding so that we can maybe transform ourselves and society so that it can find some sort of harmony so that we, um, so we start to learn and we're not learning. Yeah. So it's a really big question. It's not totally formed, but I wanted to leave it sure. on. Sure. And hopefully you will both work on this a little bit. Yeah, no, I have, I have some comments here. You know, fundamentally, again, this is somewhat um, weaving back to the central narrative that fundamentally this is a, a, a spiritual issue. <clears throat> and this goes really to the very core of it. Because the fundamental issue is, is one of duality versus non-duality. You know, um, that's a spiritual issue. You can say it's philosophy. Well, yeah, that only takes you so far. But the fundamental idea is that you know we we use um, the phenomenal world. We use the world as if it was a natural resource that we're somehow um, separate from it, and therefore we can do whatever the f we want with it. Well, whatever we do with the world, we do with ourselves because the world is not separate from us. So fundamentally, this this delusion of duality is the fundamental pathology of which everything is just an iteration. And so within that, then you get a really interesting things, like even the idea of the myth of progress itself. Have, have we ever really thought about that, especially with technology? Progress to what? Progress denotes a teleology. You know, fundamentally, even the notion of progress should really be questioned. Even that is brought about by some sense of deficiency. We're progressing to our version of utopia, perfection. Well, in so doing, because we have such a misunderstanding, we don't get utopia, we get dystopia. That's what we're having right now. So we have to look, kick the tires, look underneath the hood. What is this thing called progress, really? I mean, there is this thing called evolution. Darwin is true. But, you know, conflating that with what we know is now techno technological um, evolution and progress, this is, this is a definition of cancer. I mean, cancer is growth without direction. 
That's what's happening here. This is growth without direction. We label it progress. Progress, a human race to where? If you open your eyes on the deepest spiritual lens, not to return to some kind of mythic Garden of Eden, but there's, there, you know, fundamentally, there is nothing in, in missing in reality. There's nothing to progress to. There's just something to open our eyes to. And so even that, again, these so-called spiritual um, tenets have the most profound implications, literally challenging the very hubris of what we think is progress, which is axiomatic in the West. It's just a given. Oh, we'll get better. It's another way to keep deferring. It's actually a way to defer, to keep deferring and rescheduling our appointment with reality. Oh, we'll get better. We just need more progress. Well, you know, look around the world to see how well that narrative is turning. So this is a bad story, right? This is a really bad story with a really tragic ending, you know, the, the, the foreboding of which is being told in these pages. And so, you know, we are not heading in a good direction. We all know that. I wish we all knew it. Many of us know it. The question is, what do we do about it? Well, yes. we arm ourselves with these teachings. We feel them because we're not going to change if we just leave it up here. We change when we feel. And then we hit the streets. We do whatever we, needs to be done. I mean, enlightenment, remember, even in, in the Buddhist tradition, the central rubric is view, meditation, action, action. That's the final step. But, you know, what enlightened action means is a little bit more than we can discuss here. But fundamentally, that's where this all ends up. It doesn't end up in some antiseptic meditative absorption state. Um, you know, one of the most powerful near enemies. If you're doing this properly, wisdom transforms automatically into compassion and purified intention. And then natural action, enlightened activity is actually born from just that. So again, I probably ought to let that one go because as, as you rightly pointed out, this is a big one. So I'll take one more. Um, and then with your kind permission, we try to end it at the hour and a half mark. This is such a charged topic. We can return to it next week if you'd like. So maybe Andy, if there's a way that you can kind of get the names of people who still might be in line, I want to honor them. Um, maybe put them at the front of the line from next week if they show up, if you can do that. But we'll take, I'll take one more quick one. Um, thank you, David, so much. I'll see you uh, maybe tomorrow with Dr. Thurman, so. Uh, next, I'll give the audio to Janine. Hello? Hi. Hi. Um, gosh, I don't know if my question is super quick, but maybe um, I'll it's just okay. try to get to the, to no the essence of it. Um, and my question uh, got picked up from one of your recent um, lectures when you were talking in a really, I thought, uh, provocative way about the way that we project our unconscious onto the world. Yeah, structures, yeah. Yeah, and that the world actually becomes almost maybe one of the few ways we could actually access our unconscious. That's right. Um, and so where I was going with this was maybe a little nerdy because I was actually thinking about how that might relate to really interesting ideas about like, um, like how the world can be our guru right. and sort of our perfect teacher, right. actually, which I've always thought was just an incredibly beautiful right. uh, idea. So 
I don't know if you wanted to address that in a little bit more of a, like a real world way today, but, but that's what I was wondering if you, I'd be, I think I'd be great to get your input on th these ideas, like the perfect teacher or what we could learn from the world maybe. Yes. Wow. Um, yeah, lots, lots to, to ping on here. So yeah, you're talking about, you know, to just situate what you're talking about the, in the, in this tradition, there are four types of teacher, right? Four types of guru, physical teacher, um, the guru is text, dharma, the, the symbolic guru, where your world really becomes your teacher. Um, and this is just replete in the tradition. It's one of the more interesting ones for me, where if you really develop a sensitive relationship to the world, not in a kind of Charles Manson sicko way that the world is always sending me messages. Well, the world is, is inseparable from you. And, and so on a very deep level, like Milarepa said, Phenomena are all the books one needs if we simply know how to decrypt, decode, and kind of hack into the encryption of the phenomenal world as teacher. Well, right now, I mean, you know, the, the teachings come back. Remember, one way this works is through synchronicity, coincidence, that if you're on the right track, very practical, <clears throat> um, if you're on the right track, your world is filled with coincidence. Um, all kinds of magical things can happen when you're doing the right thing. When you're not on the right track, the universe is no longer on your side. The universe is not on your side. Coincidence is replaced with accidents. And the accidents are directly proportional to the level of narcosis. If you're really, really sound asleep, like we seem to be, the alarms just need to be getting, they just keep getting louder and louder and louder. I mean, how much louder, like Joe was saying, how much louder do they need to get? before we start to wake up. Violence, I mean, just look at the world. I mean, that, that alarm clock is going ballistic and people are still snoring. If you're really in tune with your world, really sensitive, and you are off, your world will bump you. You'll notice little nudges like, hey, don't go there. Sometimes quite literal, sometimes quite physical, but often more kind of metaphorical, symbolic. So world is, is, is symbolic guru is, is, is a really elegant way, again, to look at the inseparability of self and other. I'll let that one go for now. Um, the other one that you mentioned, yeah, this is, this is a huge part of what we talked about in the last, ten, last class, was that fundamentally, we're talking a lot about these structures of consciousness, generally inaccessible to introspection. We tend to think that they're somehow lodged in some ineffable deep core of the unconscious mind. Well, maybe, but the real kicker is um, these unconscious structures are actually projected into the very structure of the world. So they're literally hiding in plain sight. It's just like the ultimate irony. So if you wanna learn the structure of your unconscious mind, look at the structures of the world. You wanna look at the structures of the collective unconscious mind, look at the cultural, social collective structures and that maybe i'll leave it at that because that's either terrifying which at this point it should be a little bit terrifying um you know structures that are that are fundamentally just not working so maybe janine just for the purposes of time it's such a, a really big topic the second thing maybe we can come back to that a little bit later i don't want to just zip across it because there's it's really pretty deep but i think the most important thing is the world really is our teacher if we open our hearts and minds to it, it really is um, 
you know, we're just uh, communicating. There's this level of communication is always taking place if we're simply open to it. And so let's just look at around us and see, you know, what, and again, we're, we're, we're part of this mix. You know, we talk about Trump or somebody, Trump is not a cause, you know this, Trump is a symptom. Um, and I apologize for anybody who, you know, I'm a, I'm a liberal Democrat, full disclosure, that's my bias. You know, these people, um, despots, dictators and what like, they're, they're symptomatic. And so therefore that means we're participatory, we're complicit whether we know it or not. Every time we buy plastic, we're complicit in polluting this world and despoiling it. Every time we buy gas, every time we're part of this shit show. And therefore, we have to take responsibility for that part um, and not just keep deferring it. You know, I mean, these little drops of activity add up. Every time you do these things in, a, in an ecological way, they add up. Um, and so we start with, our, with, with where we are and then we just continue. So with all that said, I probably ought to let it go for now. Thank you, everybody, so much. Thank you, Joseph, Myra. Um, Arthur, everybody else who contributed, um, very rich conversation. Maybe we can continue next week, but as usual, um, I will be back around um, next, uh, next week at one o'clock Mountain Standard Time. And between now and then, like I say these days, wash your hands and open your heart. See you later.